Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, how many were killed in the war on terror in the aftermath of 9-11? We'll be hearing from Byline Times writer Nafiz Ahmed, who has been calculating the distressing death toll at somewhere around 6 million people and it's one which poses some awkward questions for all of us in the West. The lesson we can take from this really is to question whether indiscriminate violence is is ever the answer. And I think what we learned after 20 years is that with the return of the Taliban to Afghanistan, I mean, this kind of very kind of grim irony of of having the, uh, the movement that kind of sparked it all off, you know, that we were fighting to remove these people from power are now back. The lesson really is, does it work? Did it really work? Um, And was it worth it? Much more from Lafise to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast exists thanks to subscribers to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which costs just £36 a year. A subscription also helps fund Byline TV and our news-breaking website. You can get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com, and thank you if you've already done so. The appalling attacks on the Twin Towers in New York claimed 2,977 innocent lives, and more than 25,000 people were injured. We've been reminded of this because of the 20th anniversary of the atrocity, whose victims were, quite rightly, remembered. But do we show the same care and reverence for the people who died in the various conflicts pursued by the West in the years that followed, many of them innocent bystanders? Within a month of 9-11, the US invaded Afghanistan and was joined by allies like Britain, whose Prime Minister Tony Blair enthusiastically embraced the war on terror. Here he is in the House of Commons in 2003, ahead of a crucial vote on the war in Iraq. If this House now demands that at this moment, faced with this threat from this regime, that British troops are pulled back, that we turn away at the point of reckoning, and this is what it means, what then? What will Saddam feel, strengthened beyond measure? What will the other states who tyrannise their people, the terrorists who threaten our existence, what will they take from that? That the will confronting them is decaying and feeble. Who will celebrate and who will weep if we take our troops back from the Gulf now? Blair's eloquence carried the day, of course, and as well as Iraq, the war on terror also spread into Pakistan, Syria and Yemen. Now, in the years that followed, there's no doubt that people who meant harm to the US and its allies were killed in the war. But so too were countless numbers of innocent people, some caught up in explosions or bombing raids, while others died as an indirect consequence. During wartime, people often can't access food, water or basic health care. In light of the US withdrawal from Afghanistan and the restoration of a Taliban government, was all that suffering worth it? In the excellent BBC documentary 9-11, Inside the President's War Room, which you can find on iPlayer, President George W. Bush reflected on his decision to launch military action. I made some big decisions, starting with the big thought of America being in war. And those decisions were not made out of anger. They were made with a goal in mind, which was to protect the American people. 
I think I was right. <laughs> and do you think your actions after 9-11 made the world a safer place? Uh, you know, there wasn't any other tax in America. Uh, we'll let the historians sort all that out. Let me just say this, I'm comfortable with the decisions I made. George W. Bush. Nafiz Ahmed from Byline Times has been telling me about his attempts to gauge how many people died in the war on terror. But first I asked for his reaction to those comments by the former president. It's interesting that he answered in that way because it was a very specific answer which indicated he didn't want to talk about what the actual impact of his actions were, of his decisions were, on the entire world, including specifically the parts of the world where American force was deployed in Afghanistan, Iraq, but not just those countries, many others in the Middle East and North Africa and Central Asia and beyond. So it's quite interesting because we know now that there have been many, many studies which have shown that the impacts of those conflicts have really been to create this arc of instability. We've had governments collapse, we've had societies crumble, infrastructures break down. There's been all sorts of chaos and destabilization. Since then, we've had a series of ongoing conflicts and civil wars triggered in the wake of these interventions, including, of course, the rise of ISIS, which arguably wouldn't have happened in the way it did without the intervention into Iraq, the kind of playing around in Syria and the way those two theatres of intervention essentially collided and kind of laid the groundwork for states to, to become so weak that it allowed extremist groups to suddenly have you know, kind of a playing field. So it's quite interesting that his response is very carefully designed to just focus very narrowly on, on one metric only which suggests, of course, that for President Bush, the only thing that mattered was American lives and other lives just aren't worthy. You've estimated that six million people could have died as a result of the war on terror. It is very difficult for reasons I'm sure you'll explain to identify exactly how many people have been killed. But how do you arrive at that figure? So this is something I've been tracking for many years, and I've done lots of different reporting on it, looking at the different death tolls and estimates. So it's important when looking at these figures to say that these are what I would, and I think most experts who are in this field would describe them as reasonable conservative estimates, but they're certainly not precise or accurate figures. But where they come from is looking at what we know of the direct deaths. And the problem is with the direct death toll, no one's counting. There isn't any institution which is really sitting there and keeping track of the number of people who have died. So we have institutions like Brown University's Cost of War Project. There's been other studies by groups like Physicians for Social Responsibility, a Nobel Prize winning charity in Washington, D.C. There's been several groups who are trying to keep track to some extent of the impacts of these wars. And so what they found is that, you know, we can accumulate a fairly reasonable conservative estimate of the number of people who died directly in these interventions. But in addition to the number of people who died directly, there's a vast number of people who die as an indirect consequence of war. And there's been several studies, and again, it's pretty well known in the field, that in modern wars, the number of people that die as an indirect consequence due to the destruction of infrastructure, the destruction of water facilities or health facilities, 
the introduction of diseases, impact on food systems, all these different things massively outweighs the number of people who died directly. So indirect deaths always outweigh the number of direct deaths. And there's various ratios that people have developed as a result to say, well, you know, you're looking at between three and 15 times. So we have this estimate from the Geneva Declaration on Armed Violence and Development, which is global initiative signed by over 100 governments around the world. They've done studies looking at these figures and looking at modern wars since the 1990s and onwards. And they said that really the number of indirect deaths ranges between around three times and 15 times the number of people who die directly. So they've come up with a way of trying to look at certain types of conflict and they'll say, really looking on average, it's about four times higher for your average conflict. And of course, it will depend on different factors. It can depend on the state of development of the country before a bombing campaign. It can depend on the intensity of the violence and it can depend on what happens on the aftermath of the violence. But the times four is really your minimum especially when you're thinking about quite an intense military intervention led by Western states in a country which is far weaker. This was also described by the scholars at the Cost of War Project at Brown University, which recently published a set of updated figures just around the anniversary of, of the 20 year anniversary of 9-11, where they said, you know, you're looking at about 1 million civilians killed directly in wars related to the war on terror interventions. And that included... I believe Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Syria, and Pakistan. But of course, the limitations of these sorts of studies are one, we're relying on counting direct deaths that nobody's really counting, and that people who are counting it are doing it with limited budget, limited personnel. And so those numbers are more than likely to be conservative. So what I did was I basically used the methodology of the Geneva Declaration, which was kind of the four times, take the direct death toll, times it by four per conflict, and that gives you what they said is a reasonable conservative estimate of the average probable indirect death toll. I did it for each particular country that was mentioned in the Kosovo project. So I went through each particular case. So then you have figures for indirect deaths, figures for direct deaths, And then you just do that for each theatre. Then your total number of deaths, including indirect and direct deaths, even just doing it with our 1 million figure, you know, you times 1 million by 4, or 1.2 million by 4, I think it was 1.2, something like that, is that, you know, there's a range here due to the uncertainty. So 1.2 times 4 gets us into that just over 4 million range for indirect deaths. You add that to 1 and you're already in the just over 5 million range. So if we do it a bit more precisely, country by country, and I also incorporated Libya, I also took issue with the way in which the Kosovo War Project had delineated their Syria figures, because they had started counting it in 2014. In my analysis, you know, you looked at Syria, started a bit earlier, incorporated Libya, so you end up with around, I think it was 5.9, just short of, of 6 million. Now, the other important thing, of course, to recognize is that when you're doing this kind of analysis, it's very difficult to attribute direct responsibility. And that's precisely why you find that there is a reluctance to use figures like this in discussion of death tolls. Because when you talk about direct deaths, you can say, well, these was a direct consequence of the bombing campaign. 
the United States was directly responsible. And so there is a reluctance to talk about indirect death because of the indirect responsibility and who was the one that did the killing specifically. Of course, in a country like Syria, for example, we had multiple actors in that conflict. We had different countries involved. So how do you attribute responsibility? So the way in which I, I really see this is that those figures are not figures you can use and say, so America killed six million people. No, that's not correct. But what is accurate and what is important is to recognize and say that the United States, as well as Britain, launched wars which led to the deaths of six million people. And that's very conservative. So we can't say that the United States and Britain were directly responsible, but I would argue that they certainly were indirectly responsible because of the decisions that they made, the way in which they followed those through, and the consequences of those decisions, many of which were foreseeable consequences. And that's the key. There are legal nuances here and ramifications regarding complicity and responsibility, which still apply. And there are questions really about if we have reasonable foresight that certain actions that we take are very likely to produce a certain scale of instability, which will increase the probability of civil war, for instance, or increase the probability of extremist groups. We've had lots and lots of evidence come out that actually we knew that if we did certain things, there was going to be a rise in extremist groups. We even had warnings about the rise of ISIS, that Al-Qaeda would find a recruiting ground in Iraq. And we were told this again and again, our intelligence agencies, and yet they continue to pursue these decisions. And so that's where I think we can establish that there is a very real culpability for these crimes. What's important, I think, is contrasting. I mean, the six million figure is, of course, a shocking one just because the death toll which it reminds us of is, is of course, the death of six million Jews during the Second World War. It's the figure we associate that with. And so it's, of course, quite shocking to come up with this figure in the context of the war on terror. But, of course, these are very, very different types of conflict during the genocide of, of the Jewish people, what we had there was a centralized bureaucratic state expanding and pursuing an agenda that unfolded and evolved and radicalized with time. It was very different to what we have today, where we have a multiplicity of different states taking these different actions. And I think what's interesting is how we've moved into this new era in modern times. During the Second World War, it was difficult to identify crimes and to hold people to account for certain reasons, geopolitics and the way that the Nazis were concealing their actions and so forth and so forth. But today we find that there's a combination of these things going on. You have multiple states concealing their crimes, concealing their actions, multiple actors concealing their crimes and their actions. But the result is in many ways, ultimately, people are dying. And it happens very differently, and the intent is dispersed in different and complex ways. But it means that in some ways, we've moved into a world where violence has become systemic and invisible in a way that it wasn't before. That's a very, very worrying place to be. One of the alarming studies that I read while I was doing the research, and I don't remember the exact reference, but it was a recent study a couple of years ago in a medical journal, which was looking at indirect deaths from just general modern wars since 1990. And they used this kind of excess death methodology, but applied it in a very precise way. So rather than based on the kind of extrapolation method that I've used here, they used an excess death methodology, which is essentially looking at mortality rates. And it's, it's actually much more scientific. And you look at normal mortality rates 
before a conflict, and then you look at the mortality rate after. But it obviously requires access to data and so on and so forth. But they did that around the world, and they said that there was something like 30 million deaths from armed violence as a result of the indirect consequences, which is absolutely colossal, astonishing figure. And I wasn't aware of that, and I found that tremendously shocking. But it's invisible. It's a figure that no one talks about because no one's aware of it. And this is the kind of very strange world in which we're living, in which here in the West we're shielded from what's going on around us, but it's still happening. And, of course, each and every one of the deaths in the Twin Towers at 9-11 was a tragedy, every single one of those. And none of this narrative is to, in any way, diminish the impact of those deaths on the people who lost loved ones, on the people who lost their own lives. I suppose it just reminds us that in the backlash against the people responsible for the attacks on the Twin Towers, many millions more of innocent people whose lives in the West we generally don't mourn, whose lives we generally don't count in the West, also died. And there seems to be very little corresponding memorial of those people or recognition of those people. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think this is the sad reality. The way in which our wars are conducted reveals what we value and what we don't value. And I think what we see in these moments is the in-group and the out-group mentality, which is so dangerous and which is so central to all war and all terrorism. The people who committed the atrocities on 9-11 did so believing that those people in the Twin Towers were worthless compared to the values that they were fighting for. And that's really the essence of all atrocity, is when you believe that your ideology is supreme over the lives of other people. And I think it's important to realise that that extremism, which can be so virulently expressed in a religious ideology that justifies violence, can, however, in terms of its moral logic, be present in different ways in our own societies, in the way that we make decisions about war. And I think we saw this with President Bush's response, which was that, well, who cares what happened out there? The important thing is that we've stopped attacks on American soil, but there's no other calculation that matters. And I think that's an interesting thing. It's a revealing insight into another form of extremism, when you're willing to take these quite horrendous measures and and to apply brutal force to other people around the world because it protects your people but other people don't matter it's and it's all he did really is is take the logic that osama bin laden used that core moral logic and he inverted it and he applied it around the world elsewhere what's the difference between him and bin laden from that point of view and it's also important to emphasize that many of the possibly six million, possibly more, possibly less, but thereabouts people who died, many, many of those people were individuals who we would regard as ordinary citizens. They were not fighters. They were people living at home, going about their daily business, who had bombs rained down 
from the skies upon the places where they lived, just going about their business, ordinary peaceful citizens. Yeah, I think the lesson we can take from this really is to question whether indiscriminate violence is, is ever the answer. And I think what we learned after 20 years is that with the return of the Taliban to Afghanistan, I mean, this kind of very kind of grim irony of, of having the uh, the movement that kind of sparked it all off, you know, that we were fighting to remove these people from power and now back. The lesson really is, does it work? Did it really work? Um, and was it worth it? We can look back and we can evaluate whether this approach is really the right approach. Bush seems to think it was worth it, though, doesn't he? He can claim that there have been no further significant attacks on US soil inspired by Islamist militants. So from that point of view, he can argue it was a success. I guess it's about how you value success, how you measure success. And I think if you're going to measure success in a narrow way, then, yeah, you can make out that it's a success. But I think in a way that says more about you and what you think. I'm pretty sure bin Laden felt that what he'd done was a success. He'd successfully committed this operation. And arguably, he brought forward an intervention that actually led to many of his followers to become emboldened and empowered around the world. We've had all sorts of other terrorist attacks. We didn't have the same scale on the United States in the same way, but we had a proliferation of terrorist attacks around the world, including many Western countries, you know, many in London. And we've lost loved ones here as well as a result. So it's a very narrow lens, and you can really justify anything with that kind of narrow lens. And the question really is, you know, what kind of world do we really want to live in? Do we want to live in a world where we are having to use these kind of artificial narrow metrics to make ourselves feel good about our decisions? But in the meanwhile, there is horrendous chaos and stability and deaths being inflicted. And also that you can, you can stick to that little metric or are we going to kind of just take a step back and actually look at what's really happening in the world and say, well, wait a minute, is this really working? It's also worth looking at where we are now in Afghanistan with the return of the Taliban and the prospect that the Taliban will inevitably end up becoming a breeding ground, essentially, and a recruiting sergeant for people who support al-Qaeda, people who support the Islamic State. And we've had reports already that that's already happening. And, and there's even already infighting going on within Afghanistan. There are people defecting from the Taliban to ISIS allied groups in Afghanistan. There are people in the Taliban who are designated terrorists who had relationships with the people who essentially did 9-11. And, that, you know, so it's a very extraordinary place to be. And I think it's a huge, you know, the, the hubris involved in, seeing this as in any way a sort of a victory, the, the extent of self-delusion <laughs> that you have is, is quite shocking, actually. We really need to resist this tendency to want to feel good about it, to want to feel like, no, it's okay. We know we made some difficult decisions and it's okay. You know, there's, there's been no more 9-11s in America. That's fine. Because what happens, we don't know what's going to happen now in Afghanistan. With the rising instability in so many of these regions around the world, you know, from Afghanistan to Syria to Iraq to elsewhere, how do we predict that we can prevent different types of terrorist attacks or more sophisticated attacks? 
no, it's not something you can control in that way. We know ISIS-affiliated or ISIS-inspired groups have not disappeared from the the world. ISIS themselves inspired by Al-Qaeda. So the the philosophy that led to 9-11 has not disappeared, and the number of willing fighters for that philosophy has not disappeared. No, and I I think what we have seen instead is that when the more sophisticated methods of attack aren't available, then rudimentary methods of attack are perfectly available. You know, you can just inspire, you know, a person can feel inspired by something they've watched or read or downloaded and then can drive a car into members of the public or you can pick up a knife. You can't stop that. The more you bomb people around the world, all you've done is really said to people that, well, if it's going to be difficult for you to pull off a huge operation like 9-11, well, why don't we just have more of you going around doing crazy things which are completely unpredictable, which no society can stop and prevent without turning into a police state and completely destroying the whole point of a democracy. And that's exactly what they want. That's exactly what Osama bin Laden and his ilk wanted Baghdadi as well from ISIS, all the rest of it, that's what they wanted. They wanted to show that this democracy is a failure, that the values that we stand for of respecting each other, respecting difference and being living together across different faiths and people of no faith and finding ways to to flourish and prosper, they wanted to show that that's not going to work. It can't work. You can't do it. You have to change. You have to completely change your way of life. And that's what we've been doing. We've been doing that as time has gone on. There will be many people who say that 9-11 was just so enormous in its horror and in its tragedy that no American president could have resisted the desire for revenge and to seek some kind of military pushback against the people responsible. It's a reasonable kind of assumption on its face, but I prefer to look at things that actually happen. And what's ironic is that in that year, before 2000 and before 9-11, I was writing about American preparations to invade Afghanistan. Long before 9-11, I mean, that's all there in the public record. I did a whole analysis, and that analysis was based on, ironically, American and British negotiations with the Taliban which had been going on through the 1990s to kind of establish a compromised federal government in Afghanistan. The idea was that they would have like a nice trans-Afghan pipeline going across, getting gas from Central Asia and so on and so forth. And it's still an idea that's still going on, still rumbling along. Even the Taliban today have been attempting to kind of bring this idea back to life and wanting to get international money and trying to change the way that they look and the way that they appear. But that was going on before 9-11, and it's quite interesting that long before there was any inkling that there was a huge shift in geopolitics that would occur, you know, there would be a terrorist attack, this whole idea of a big intervention in Afghanistan was already on the table. And in fact, there was a Pakistani diplomat who would comply with this plan to have an agreement with the Northern Alliance and other whatever faction was there and have a federal government. We will bomb you. 
And subsequently, it was, I think, um, reported by some, several places in the States that there was actually a, a very specific and meticulous plan of action in place the day before 9-11 that had been provided to President Bush. So how do we explain, you know, all of that geopolitical kind of direction of, of wanting to go to war? 9-11 doesn't even explain it. That's the irony. 9-11 happened and it then provided... You know, we had we had all of this stuff in place already, and so it was like, let's go into Afghanistan. And it's interesting when you look back at the records, actually, how people like Dick Cheney and others were constantly changing the, the discussions that were going on, which shifted from Afghanistan. There was the Afghanistan plan, but there was also the Iraq idea, and at the same time, they were trying to find a way to link Osama bin Laden to Saddam Hussein as well. I mean, this is all now very well known. But it was quite extraordinary how they were really trying to shift that narrative internally to what you know to shift the direction. So when you look at what's going on really with planning and the thinking, no one cared really that much about let's do some amazing revenge. That's not what happened. Bush wasn't sitting there thinking, I'm gonna wave the American flag and take revenge for my compatriots, which would be bit unsavory but a romantic way you know he wasn't actually the great american patriot you know kind of like they're flying over to afghanistan to carry out this great revenge which he was so incensed by it wasn't that kind of a response it's really interesting to see very cold discussions going on in the corridors of power you know in the white house about energy about you know geopolitics about American interests, discussions with Enron, discussions with different energy companies about how to reconstruct the regions, which defense company is going to get involved. That was what this was all about. You don't find much real evidence that anybody was particularly like, let's go and get revenge because it's so terrible and we're so emotional and we need to give this to the American people. They really want blood. Everyone wants blood and that's what this is. If it's 20 years, please correct me if I'm wrong. Nafiz Ahmed, and you can get much more incisive and insightful journalism like that at bylinetimes.com and in our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, which has additional content you won't find online. If you want to comment on that story, do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com or join the conversation on Twitter at bylinetimespod. We've also got Byline Radio coming soon. More details in the next few weeks. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Thanks for listening.